Good morning and welcome from New York to the latest around the world in 20 minutes, where we try to make sense together of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And uh, I'm jet lagged out of my mind. Uh, one of the things that's funny about my life is that when you talk about it, it sounds better than sometimes it lives. And those of you who travel know what I'm talking about, that it sounds like you're, you're someplace like Gene Kelly dancing down the Seine in an American in Paris, uh, when really what you are is jet lagged, uh, paying ridiculous amounts of money to sit for two hours in traffic, as I did yesterday in New York. And by the way, when I'm always talking about American infrastructure, yesterday I lived American infrastructure, and God, the potholes are awful. And while this is going on, it took an hour and a half in the middle of the day to get from Kennedy to Manhattan. Uh, sure sign, perhaps we ought to spend a little money enlarging and improving our roads rather than funding wars that are only of peripheral importance to us. But here I sit in New York, and I have a great event tonight with my friend Kashif Zephyr from Credit Agricole, a bank that we've long worked with, cutting-edge uh, bank, where we do an awful lot of uh, political risk thinking together. And uh, it's a great event for a lot of reasons. Kashif and I go way back, and I love thinking with him and his people, and we're going to play a war game looking at links between Ukraine um, and on the one hand and the Taiwan Strait on the other uh, to test if there are any links and if there are what they might be. And so that'll be great fun. Uh, I've worked with some of these people for a long, long time. And obviously, as you play war games, like anything else, you get better at it. And so I'm looking forward to doing that and then getting time to hang out with Kashif and talk about political risk around the world uh, more informally after the evening's over. And so that'll be good fun. Uh, I'm seeing other clients here that, that I work with in New York, and I have a view outside the window right now of the Great Canyon of skyscrapers here in Manhattan, uh, which reminds you of the power and majesty of American capitalism, easy to deride but vital for the world. And I thought that rather than just do one of the around the world in 20 minutes, because I had a minute, I would, ha I would have you guys help me, and I would go through what's going to be my briefing prep for tonight. Usually in a war game, uh, we give a couple documents to people so that they're aware of what we're doing um, to keep the game factual. And so on the one hand, we plan to uh, give them scripts so they know what their country um, has been doing for the last six months. It's usually a just the facts, ma'am kind of thing. Um, like dragnets where we, we just say, here's the GDP, here's the political state of play, here's what they think about the issue. And then I do a briefing, as I used to do in my glory days in Washington at the White House occasionally, where I give a briefing uh, for the last six months of what's been going on. And so I thought that as practice today, as I'm jet lagged out of my head, I woke up at two o'clock, sure enough, in the morning, and I'll be very, very tired tonight. So it isn't very Gene Kelly-like. I wish it were. Uh, but it's not. I'll be sleep deprived and getting more than a little tired. And so I thought ahead of trying to get a nap, I would go through this with our with our community so that we could keep things moving along at a nice, 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 nice pace while I do this. So our title is Amidst All the Global Brush Fires, the U.S. Must Keep Its Eyes Squarely on the Taiwan Strait, meaning the threat from China supersedes all others. And here's a rough version of what I'm planning to say tonight during my, my prep. Um, the first thing to say is that there certainly have been increasing tensions regarding the Taiwan Strait. And we have to go back really to Deng Xiaoping, that 
the, this most important man that the 20th century in the West knows almost nothing about, done by unleashing the genie of uh, the genius of Chinese capitalism, added 800 million people, 800 million people into the middle class by UN terms. And even if you accept those terms are inflated and it's really the lower middle class, this is a monumental achievement for a country that before Deng was desperately, desperately poor. And really, he set them on their road to superpower status. And Deng, when he looked around after the ruins of the Cultural Revolution, Mao's lunacy, along with his even crazier wife, Jiang Qing, uh, he defeats the Gang of Four, the uh, ideologues, comes to power um, in December 1978, comes to power. And Deng realizes that the legitimacy of the Communist Party is on the line and that the only thing that's going to save it is two very old organic Chinese traits. Capitalism, anybody who's ever been to a Chinatown everywhere knows the Chinese are geniuses at capitalism, and nationalism, that the Communist Party post-Mao can only survive, and even authoritarian states have to be legitimate to their people, can only survive by really meeting the needs of their people on these two organic Chinese traits of capitalism and nationalism. Deng favored capitalism, and Xi Jinping, his successor, has favored nationalism. But they are fundamentally ingrained factors leading to the uh, mandate of heaven, as it's called in China, being bestowed on the Chinese communists after Mao, that political legitimacy is bound up in them delivering the goods on capitalism and nationalism. And almost any Chinese official that you meet, and I've met for my sins many through the years, will go through a litany of all that's happened in China since the Opium Wars. And we'll say we were humiliated in the 19th century, and to not be humiliated and to be taken seriously and feared and revered as a great power again, we have to reunite China. And then they specifically list what they mean by reuniting China. They say we must, the Western China, where the Uyghurs live, Zhangjiang province must be pacified and included in China, as must Tibet, as must uh, Macau and Hong Kong, um, and then lastly, as must Taiwan. And they repeat this like a mantra, like a litany. Um, this is a program. This isn't just aspirational thinking. Western China, Xinjiang province, Tibet um, has to be included as well, uh, Hong Kong and Macau, and then last but not least, Taiwan. And they really have staked their legitimacy to this. And so far, so good. Four of the five are back in the fold. Uh, certainly there have been hiccups, but by and large, they've accomplished what they set out to do and kept that mandate. But this is not a peripheral issue for the Chinese. This is a fundamental issue for the Communist Party, maintaining that mandate of heaven. And that's the first thing to say as to why tensions are endemic. This is not some side issue the Chinese, that Beijing can parlay away. Um, as a result, the CIA um, has noted, and, and although there's a lot of noise on both sides about should we believe them, the G has told his security forces that by 2027 at the latest, he wants the capability to retake Taiwan. That doesn't mean they're going to do it, but he wants that as an option, and he lists a specific date to do so, 2027. If you factor in uh, the next couple years after that, even though China is a peaking power, as we've talked about, really the period of ultimate danger is the short to medium term from 2027 to 2030, 31, somewhere in there, that that is the period of maximum danger when China will have its best opportunity 
to go ahead and retake Taiwan. However, so this is an ongoing background. This is the context to these tensions increasing. And then lastly, um, Taiwan has elections coming up. What we forget, Taiwan is a democratic country, unlike China, and they have, they have elections, presidential and parliamentary elections, in January of next year. And at the moment, and they, it's still close, the opposition parties have talked about unifying, but they have yet to put forward a single candidate. So the proof's in the pudding. We'll wait and see. But at the moment, William Lai of the Democratic People's Party, who are presently in power in Taiwan, he's the front runner. And the DPP is committed to, if not independence, to having a more independent Taiwan. And Lei makes the uh, Chinese communists go crazy when he says forthrightly what most Taiwanese think, that Taiwan is a sovereign nation, but the status quo, the murky status quo with China at the moment is okay, but in practice it's a sovereign nation and nothing the Chinese say is going to change that. And so William Lei is not who the Chinese want to win. They'd be much happier with the Guomingdan candidate winning or the opposition winning because the DPP the Chinese always fear are going to someday slip the leash and say we're for outright independence. And certainly they're the more independent minded of the two major groupings. And so the DPP is ahead at the moment. So for all these reasons, there's no doubt that there are increasing tensions in the Taiwanese Strait. While, while all these other things in the world are going on, we have to keep that in mind. Um, secondly, we have to look as, again, good structural realists that we are here. Uh, in the Round of the World in 20 Minutes podcast, we have to look at structural realism, the actual structure of the world. There's a lot of noise, and one of the ways that you can separate yourself from the noise of the 24-7, almost always wrong, mainstream center-left media is to, is to look at the underlying power realities of the world, and they remain rather starkly unchanged. Uh, since the coming of the Ukraine war, uh, which really did move some things around, you have a configuration that on the surface favors the United States over China. They're the two great global superpowers by far. And underneath the United States as allies, you have the EU, which has returned to the fold with the invasion of Ukraine, That in their, and they're being scared by Putin. They've scurried back from a position of almost neutrality under Merkel and the Germans to a much more pro-Western position at present. So the EU is, is squarely behind the United States at present. The Anglosphere, the English-speaking countries of the world, Sundance to the American Butch Cassidy, they're squarely behind things. This is the, the Five Eyes countries, the, the cousins, as John le Carré would put it in his wonderful smiley novels, that you have the United States and the UK and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, who, like Butch and Sundance, bicker, but always come out fighting the Bolivian army together in World War I, World War II, and the Cold War. Quite incredibly, these five entities have always sided over the big stuff together. And so the Anglosphere remains, as it always is traditionally, behind America. The EU has scurried back from a position of quasi-neutrality to be behind the United States at the same time. So that's firmly on board um, among the great powers. Japan, another great power because of what's going on with the rise of China, very much on board. There's a, it's a very underestimated special relationship between Japan and the United States. And in fact, Japan's agreed to double defense spending of its immense economy. So not only is it on board, it's actually spending some money on defense. So this is pretty good deal for the United States, the EU, 
uh, the Anglosphere in Japan and the United States are all clumped together. On the other hand, the only country really united behind China now is Russia. That It had been fighting to maintain a neutralist position, to not be Robin uh, to China's Batman, because in any alliance there, uh, Russia was going to have to wear the ugly tights and be Robin to China's Batman, be the second banana. But now because of the stalemate in the Ukraine war, because they didn't finish off the Ukrainians in the three weeks that Putin said, a humiliated, vengeful, uh, weak-looking Russia is now is now tamely behind China. Um, and so it's moved, as the EU has scurried back to the United States, so Russia has scurried back to China. And India is playing this very curious middle game. It, it, it on regional matters in Asia, it's quite close to the United States, closer than it's ever been. The Quadrilateral Initiative, uh, which is really an anti-Chinese grouping within the Indo-Pacific with superpower America, Anglosphere member Australia, great power India, great power Japan. Um, this is sort of a mini NATO that's out to limit and discourage Chinese adventurism in the Indo-Pacific. India is a charter member of this and is closer to America than it's ever been. But at the at the international level, particularly over things like Ukraine, it's studiously neutral. So India is flitting between these two positions of a more pro-American view and a neutralist view, um, drifting the American way, but not firmly in the American camp. Um, maddening for Americans who believe in only binary outcomes, but welcome to India, what country I've studied most of my life. And you know, vague is what you're going to get, and vague is what we have. So that's kind of the structure of the world. And I mean, from an American point of view, that sounds fine. If we manage that alliance, the United States, there's more great powers behind America than behind China by far. There is a but to my sentence. And those of you who follow the podcast know what this but is. At the next level down, at the emerging market level, everyone is studiously neutral. And certainly not in the American camp, despite America's browbeating them over Ukraine. Uh, a curious fact is that nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world, the one exception being the United States itself, are neutral over Ukraine. And over economic matters, they even tend to tilt toward, toward uh, China in many ways. And, and think, of the, think of the BRICS countries. This is Brazil. This is Turkey. This is Indonesia. This is uh, South Africa. This is the Gulf states, which, although they get their security from America, are drifting on other matters um, that are going on, as, as well as Saudi Arabia um, in this regard. Um, this is most of the rest of the world. The emerging markets of the world, the regional powers of the world, be it Indonesia, be it um, South Africa, Turkey, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, Mexico to an extent, um, are not lining up with the United States and are neutral. And this is the big, biggest single uh, economic boom and, and power boom in the future as the world becomes more multipolar. And it is not lining up in the American camp. To quote Conan Doyle from the great Sherlock Holmes mystery, the dog is not barking in the night. Uh, it's not siding with China resolutely. There are real problems, say, between India and China. But it's not, it's not desperate to join the American camp either. And that's the confusing world that we live in right now. So you have to keep that in mind as we talk about all this. Then two other things to keep in mind. One, and we've talked about this a lot, and boy, did the firm get this right. I mean, we should be very, um, I, I think we should be much more honest when we're right and when we're wrong. We can learn from both like a good method actor. 
um, the, the first actors studio group, the Montgomery Cliffs of the world, the James Deans, uh, the Marlon Brandos of the world. The only way to become a better actor is to be honest when you've done something brilliantly and also when you can learn from failure. But that requires honesty and not, not something in my profession in a whole lot of um, abundance because people are constantly pointing out that they're not wrong. I mean, to hear Neil Ferguson talk, he never was in favor of Chimerica, where he thought the Chinese and the Americans would basically run the world fairly amicably. He's now in favor of sort of a neocon Cold War. He's veering from fashion to fashion without ever mentioning he was wrong before. Uh, not only is this duplicitous, which I don't like, uh, it's bad form because it makes no sense if you read him for more than four or five minutes at a time. Um, on the other hand, I think our firm with our 80% call record, I mean, that's something to be really proud of, best in the business, because we have gotten this right. We called the Ukraine war within a week, and we called that it was a stalemate when everyone said somehow that we liked Vladimir Putin because we simply were calling facts that didn't suit the Ukrainian narrative and that of the mainstream center-left media, which has been proven yet again to be wrong, a word that we should use more often, right and wrong. And Ukraine is now certainly a stalemate. In fact, General uh, Volushny, um, the Ukrainian chief general, quite able, said it's a stalemate and horrified Zelensky by telling the truth. Uh, actually, in 2023, all you need to know territorially about it being a stalemate is in this last year, Ukraine has actually taken over more territory than or Russia's taken over more territory than is Ukraine. It's quite incredible. Um, and stalemate favors the larger country, that, that mass matters, as my friend Elbridge Colby would put it. Mass matters, that the basics of military wherewithal, particularly in a stalemate where the lightning pushes over, is what matters. Industrial production capacity, uh, boring old industrial production capacity, and boring old mass matter. There are five times as many Russians as Ukrainians. They're running out of people in Ukraine to keep fighting because they're outnumbered. And the Russians can uh, continue to make military wherewithal at a much greater rate than can the Ukrainians, who are utterly dependent on the United States for military wherewithal. Even if Biden gets every cent of his ill-thought-through $60 billion that he wants for Ukraine, talk about throwing more bad money uh, down the drain. Uh, but even that's less than, per year than the $110 billion he gave before. So Ukraine will have less money as time goes on. So this is a stalemate favoring the Russians. That's the next fact we have to look at in the world. And then lastly, the Israelis said forthrightly this week, and, and again, the Masadara group, that do learn from their mistakes and are honest about their failures, which is why they're so good at what they do. And the Mossad and the military intelligence folks said, look, it's going to take another year or so to really pacify Gaza after the ceasefire. So we have two ongoing wars uh, and there's no end game in sight in Israel. In fact, no one agrees on what the end game even begins to look like. So we have two ongoing wars between Israel and Hamas and Ukraine and Russia, with the United States nervously backing the two. Um, that's where we are right now. So the question then is, what if all the timetable for Taiwan is wrong? 2027 was ideal, but what? We assume that everyone else is inert and only we get to make choices in America. This is the problem with being the dominant power in the world for so long. What if this timetable is wrong? Uh, and, and here is possibly the only link 
between Ukraine and the Indo-Pacific. As you know, I don't buy the neocon link that they're all members of Spectre out of James Bond and that they're in this perfect, wonderful, evil coordination. Number three, how are narcotics doing? Number four, how's the arms trade doing? It's, it's a fantasy. That might make the neocons and the mainstream media Wilsonians feel better, but it's just not the way it works, as we've talked about before. But the link, though, might be through the United States and the impatience of the Chinese. Because certainly if you're Xi Jinping and you do have agency, you can act on your own in the international sphere as a superpower, what do you see beyond what we've said? Well, one, the Biden administration is undoubtedly preoccupied. There are three crises going at once. If you count the Taiwan Strait, Hamas, Israel, and Ukraine, three crises going at once. And I haven't even mentioned Donald Trump yet. If you look at the polling numbers, Trump is now statistically ahead of Biden Overall, which is quite incredible, which has never happened before, because Trump tends to perform better at a state electoral level than nationally. He's ahead nationally, and he's ahead in five of the six toss-up states quite decisively. So if the election were held today, Trump would win. And trust me, everyone in the Biden administration, whatever they say, knows this. So they're preoccupied. And the idea that somehow we can do everything, another neocon Wilsonian fantasy is simply not true. Uh, I've heard over and over again, oh, we can focus on more than one crisis at a time. Trust me, from my 10 years in Washington, as my grandmother would put it, we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. We're not that good. In Washington, people tend to focus on one thing at a time. And when they try to do more than one thing, they get distracted very, very quickly. So there, there's an emotional and intellectual distraction. And then there's the fact that, you know, and, and somebody wrote this in, in some critique of mine in Conservative Home, that, that we, they're not using the same kind of weapons. Well, that's just not true. That, for instance, both Ukraine and Israel need uh, artillery shells and want ammunition. Uh, ammo shells, tank shells, um, and we can only give them to one group at a time. There's only so much, and we've now given almost all the excess wherewithal and material that we have, and don't look for the United States, as, as uh, a frenemy of mine, George Friedman, who does very good work at geopolitical futures, don't look at them uh, to go much further, because we want to maintain some for ourselves. So there's an intellectual poll and there's also a practical ammunition pull that's there. So we have to keep that going. The next thing is that we've said before China is a peaking power, that it has all these problems we haven't talked about. But as Hal Brands, Michael Beckley, and I have said from early on, I think we were probably the first three in some sort of order. Um, that doesn't mean they're not dangerous. Rather, historically, that makes them very dangerous. Countries that peak but don't quite pass that superpower, countries like uh, the Kaiser's Germany in 1914 or Imperial Japan in the 1930s, they're incredibly dangerous because they either have to retract or they have to gamble and go all in. And they tend to go all in. So that because China has huge demographic problems, the rate of replacements now incredibly after the one-child policy ruined the country for 30 years the rate of replacements about 1.1 for women needs to be 2.1. So this country is not going to take over anything if this continues. Huge problems with real estate, huge problems uh, with debt, huge problems with local government indebtedness, uh, a black box of secondary financing that we don't know much about. And she's Maoist kind of determination to pour money um, into state-owned enterprises rather than the productive part of the country, the capitalistic part. 
all that makes it paradoxically more likely they might go. So if you're G, you know that you're a peaking power, you're a busted flush, you either have to move quickly or not at all. You know that the Biden administration is preoccupied utterly. Um, and, and so all of this, in a way, makes war more likely. And short of war, there is another possibility that needs mentioning. Uh, as we've seen in the South China Sea, the Chinese tend to do salami slicing. They move forward, but in such low increments, like slicing salami well, as the Italians would in Milan, in such narrow strips, that it isn't quite a casus belli. It doesn't quite take you to war. So they take over an island, and then they say they're not going to uh, put a landing strip on the island. And then slowly over time, they build a landing strip, but so slowly that you never think about it, like boiling a frog in water. The frog doesn't notice. And so they never overstep the line with this incremental movement forward. What if short of war, which would be one heck uh, of, of a call for them to make, we've said all the problems before in many other substacks, what if they initiate a blockade, which they're practicing for around Taiwan pretty much all the time? What if they blockade Taiwan and keep wherewithal from coming to Taiwan and put immense pressure on it? It isn't quite war. But de facto, it would force the Taiwanese to come to the table on Chinese terms. Would the Americans, on this aggressive step that's short of war, do anything given all that's going on? And here at last, we have the link. And this is what the Biden people must watch out for. This is the great danger. is a salami slicing blockade while China realizes it's a peaking power. What if it, that makes it move up its timetable? and not get rid of its timetable. And at the same time, the Biden administration is distracted. It's not keeping its eye on the ball because it's worried about the brush fires uh, in Ukraine and, and even in Israel, which is more important. Ukraine's a third order priority. Israel is, is a great, a special, has a special relationship with America, but Israel's the dominant military in the Middle East. It's not about to be overrun by Hamas anytime soon. So say this is more a second order priority Ukraine is a third order priority. But while we're worrying about all that, Taiwan and dominating the Indo-Pacific, which is the most crucial region in the world in our new era, where all the future growth will come from and all the future risk, um, this is what we should be watching. And our eye could very well be off the ball, given all the noise out there, given all that's urgent, and we aren't separating that from what's vital. vital. So the United States must absolutely underbind, keep its eye squarely, on the Taiwan Strait. Thanks. That was fun. It's a good chance to do it. I came in under time, I'm delighted to say. Um, for tonight, you got a preview of what, what a briefing at a war game is like. Um, I'll make some changes, of course, but that's roughly what I'm going to say. Um, and great fun to give you the, the latest thinking with our community. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. Um, again, and now's the time to pre-order the book, The Last Best Hope. Very exciting tonight. I'm going to get to see the book in large quantities for the first time as Credit Agricole got an advanced copy. Uh, it's quite exclusive. And so I'm going to get to sign the books for the people playing the war game, which is when an author knows he's actually done with his work. So please do pre-order the book. Please do subscribe, as so many of you have, to the Substack. And please do give the mere $70 we're asking the price of one of my cappuccinos back in Milan so that we can spend more and more time giving you this up-to-date, utterly cutting-edge political risk at its best. And like a good method actor, we hope next year to win the Oscar. And so far, so good. Take care, everybody.
and see you soon.